Welcome to Know My Faith, my guest again, two weeks in a row. That's a record for you, Jay. I've never done this before. Hey, God bless you. Jay McCall from uh, Calvary, Georgetown Divide. Uh, and I, I think divide is like you stand on the top, you divide, do you fall to the left or do you fall to the right off the ridge? Is that right? That's how pretty much how it works. We have the uh, American River surrounding us, actually, the North Fork and the Middle Fork and the South Fork, and we're kind of between the Middle and the North. Uh, 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 so it's uh, it's a ridge named by the water company, not a very attractive name. Uh, there we as go. I said last time, you say where you live and people wonder what's wrong with your church. But, you know, it's just the name of the ridge. So we've been talking about the uh, the Galilean wedding and the number of references that Jesus makes to that uh, in the Gospels that the disciples would have got automatically that we miss. It's a similar in some ways to, I think, the, um, you know, the, the Pixar movies. They always put something in there that people our age get and the kids miss completely. And, and we laugh and the kids go, what are you laughing at? <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, the disciples, uh, Jesus tried to rein his disciples in over and over again because they were militant. I mean, you've got a guy named Simon the Zealot with them. Zealots were <laughs> yeah. incredibly dangerous people. And he makes one his disciple. And he, I don't know, maybe he paired him up with Matthew at times, you know, who was a tax collector for the Romans just to mellow each other out. I don't know. But uh, uh yeah, they, they wanted to militarily uh, take over. And Jesus kept saying, no, when I come to rule and reign, which is, and he kept saying, not now. I've got other things to do. I've got to go to the cross. They couldn't accept that. Yeah. Uh, not at first. Uh, but uh, he equated it not to a military takeover, even though there's a bit of that in Revelation for sure, but to a bridegroom leaving for an indeterminate amount of time and will come back for his disciples, and then will come back to rule and reign. And the best example that he's got is a wedding. And it's used not only um, uh, by Jesus uh, and referred to occasionally by the disciples, but surprisingly, it's also referred to by the Apostle Paul, who was not a Galilean. He was a Pharisee, which means he was against Hellenization and for uh, Hebraic Judaism, and yet he understood both sides of the line, but he was not from Galilee. And yet, even in some of the things that he writes, you know that he had been talking to the apostles, which we know he did, but they had actually figured it out. They finally realized that that uh, the Lord Jesus was talking about going away the whole time, and like a bridegroom coming back for a bride, he's made a covenant with us, and we're the bride, and he's the bridegroom, and he's going to yeah. come and get us someday. This, this, is, this is the meta story that God gives right from the beginning, and he uses that picture of uh, the yes. marriage relationship right. I mean, uh, I, I was talking to, um, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Zohar Gonen the other day. Uh, and uh, the this, this story of God's intention to create a being that he could then love as a husband loves a bride. You find that all the way through the Bible. It's very difficult to go and pick and choose verses, but that's the that's the overarching story. But the Jews got to a point where they're expecting the Messiah. Now, we know that the Messiah was the one that, because of Jesus' death, we become a new creation. We're no longer the created, the created being we are. John tells us that when he comes back, we'll see him as he is. We don't know what we'll be like, but we will be like him because of what yeah. Jesus did, so that this marriage relationship can take place. And that's what Messiah did. That's what the lamb slain before the foundation of the world was always going to do. But right. the, the Jews were expecting um, the, the Jewish version of Alexander the Great or another, you know, the John, is it John Hucanus or, or, or David that's going to reestablish the kingdom and make Israel the rulers of the world, which is what Jesus is going to do. But he had to do this bit first. But on a grand scale, they were actually thinking far too small. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You had mentioned something that, again, throughout the Bible, you know, God calls the Jews his wife, not, yes. not his bride. But he calls the church his bride. And there's no contradictions there. Once again, we think very binary. It's got to be one or the other. But you can have both. Remember, the Bible's a revelation. It's not always an explanation. Yeah. But um, even uh, one of the things that I discovered, and I, and I think you might have wanted to talk about this, but, uh, and it came from of all people, the Apostle Paul, who got the gist of what the other apostles, when they 
evidently, finally figured out that Jesus had to go like a bridegroom going away to his father's house to come back for his people as a bridegroom uh, comes back unexpectedly. That um, he writes over in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing with the water yeah. through the word, that he may present her to himself a radiant bride, holy and blameless without any stain or wrinkle. And I look at that verse, and, and of course, he, Paul goes down even further and says that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave only unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We often think of that as a reference to sex. As we talked about last time, that's yeah. actually a reference in a Hebrew mind of covenant and two people becoming sort of genetically one as opposed to uh, sexually one, if I could say that. It's kind of blunt, but that's what's going on. And then he says, but but he said, I this is a great mystery. What's a great mystery? Sex? No. What's a great mystery is how do two people come together as a covenant and actually leave as one? And how does how does how does the creator God become one with this creation? Right, exactly. But then he says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Yeah. So we know he got it too. And the thing that I find most fascinating, really, I have a I have a few verses in the Bible like everybody does that I consider my absolute favorite or most important verses in the Bible to me personally. One of which to me personally is back up in verse 25, when he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now that's the husbands listen to that one and go treat your wives appropriately. But, you know, taking that verse as, as just sort of a standalone for a second. Yeah. And you take off husbands love your wives. We're not going to leave that out personally, but let's just leave it out in the discussion for a second. As Christ, the Messiah, loved the church and gave himself for her, uh, cleansing her with washing with water through the word, words, you know, transliterated into mikvah, yep. that he may present her to himself, a radiant bride, holy and blameless, without any stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Um, uh, and that's the NIV version, by the way, the nearly infallible version, uh, translation. So uh, we, we call it the nearly inspired version. The nearly inspired version, that's right. So, uh, But I love the way it reads and because it's so appropriate to what's going on. When you think about that, what's happening here is that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has just given you the whole reason that anything exists at all outside of God. Why did he make the universe? Yeah. He didn't need yeah. to. Why did, why did he cause a situation to arise where the universe could fall through sin by Adam and Eve? Why did he make a covenant with Israel? Why, um, uh, you know, with all these whys, why did he make all these covenants? Why did he send his only son? Why did he have to die, pay this price to buy a, a bride who was sold away into sin and bring her back to himself? Why did he have to rise from the dead uh, and ascend to his father and stay away for so long, only to come back again to take that bride to himself? Why is there a new heaven and a new earth? Why is there a new Jerusalem that's called the bride? Yeah. Uh, why are all the, and why does it go off into all eternity? What you've just seen in uh, Husbands Love Your Wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. To, you know, uh, to, uh, and again, seeing her as radiant, yeah. bringing her to himself, making her holy. You've just seen the entire plan of God in one sentence that God illustrates what he's doing with the universe and with redemption and salvation encapsulated as a Galilean wedding. Yeah. It's just a wedding. And, 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 and as I've said many times to, uh, to our viewers and listeners that you, you, you don't need to get all of this. Um, you know, God's not going to stand there when, when, when you finally make it to the pearly gates and, and, um, and God's not going to go, Jay, did you get my hidden code in Mark 7, 19? Because if you didn't get that, right. you're not coming in. But what he will do, I think, is when you get there and he'll say, hey, Jay, what did you think about that hidden code in Mark 7, 19? And you'll go, that was brilliant. Yeah. So what we want to do and what we want to do with, with Know My Faith and with these podcasts is just to to open up and and, and I use um, we were talking about Lord of the Rings before Jay just before we began recording and uh, Peter Jackson turned out I use this when I'm speaking in churches Peter Jackson was asked by the British archives to take the old World War one footage 
and do the wetter workshop magic on it. So he slowed it down, he put color to it, he got forensic lip readers to find out what the, you know, and so you watch it and it comes alive. And what one of the interviewers says to him, he says, did you feel like, like this was already in there and you're just piercing the film and this all comes out? And, and that's what we want to do with the scriptures, with looking at this Galilean wedding, is, is pierce what is already in the scriptures so that we look at it and go, wow, God, that's even more amazing. Exactly. And, and the way, the lenses to look at it, I found, are not through scientific or quantitative minds. Mm. But once again, as we said last time, be a peasant, be an ancient Hebrew peasant. Don't yeah. even think like a Greek philosopher. Don't even get the, the, the equations out to try and quantify anything. That when uh, even, even the Bible even takes that into consideration, Paul does when he talks to, the, to his audience, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He didn't say faith comes by reading. Yes, it does. Yes, it certainly does. But that's because we have a Bible, but 400 years ago, people didn't. And back, people couldn't own these things. You had to hear them. You had to learn them. Therefore, it had to be simple enough where people could just grab the concepts because even the most uneducated could get it. Yeah. And that's what I, I love to show because it's so simple. And yet the truth of the Bible then becomes so much richer and profound. So let's look at something that was intrinsically known by the Jews and not just the Galileans, but Jews that, that we have no idea about. And that's the mikvah. Yes. Um, because that's a, that's a big part of the of the the marriage process or the wedding process. That's uh, and it, it also translates for us as the washing of the word. But people don't know what mikvah is. To us, it's baptism, and it's a singular event that takes place once you know you you give your life to Jesus and get baptized. That's it. But mikvah is so much more than that. It is. Uh, when uh, a mikvah was used for so many different types of ceremonies, but if you so, were sorry, we better we better describe what a mikvah is first. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm just picturing it in my head. Yeah, oh, a no. mikvah is it looks like a jacuzzi without plumbing. It, it's it's something that you find uh, during the Roman period, especially uh, in in Israel. Uh, you find them all around the Temple Mount. You do find them in synagogues and in private homes of very religious people dating back to the Roman period, which basically means about 60, 70 BC, all the way up to the fall of the Temple in 70 AD, uh, and, and somewhat a little bit after that. But they were a ritual cleansing bath, and it would either be built out of stone and lined with plaster or carved out of stone and once again lined with plaster to keep it from leaks. Mm -hmm. And then there would be Typically, but not always, you see all kinds of varieties in Israel, but typically you'll find seven steps going down into it. And it would be filled with what they called living water. Living water to us is a concept. We say, and I ask pastors even and other people, what is living water? Oh, it's the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the gifts of the Spirit. It's the baptism of the Spirit. It's all of these different things. To an ancient Jew, it's moving water. It's moving like a water. stream, a babbling brook, an artesian spring, whatever, a rain. Uh, uh, a waterfall. It's because it's refreshing, it's pure, it's health-giving, it's life-promoting. Uh, everybody would prefer that sort of water over well water, which would be contaminated, and cistern yeah. water, which was contaminated, but it was so necessary. In, in the mikvah, the living water, it would come in from one end. You, you uh, as I remember it, you, you immerse yourself completely. You're not wearing togs at the time. You immerse yourself completely in the water that's coming in. This living water washes away ceremonially the, the sin and the, the, the dust and takes it away. In a sense, that, that was, again, there's multiple purposes, multiple expressions done by this. But the living water, usually from rainwater that was trapped, and they pour it in there. Uh, and then they would have to scoop it out every day. But if a person wanted to enter into some sort of a very, very devout state, in other words, you're getting betrothed for a marriage, yep. Yep. Uh, the day that you would get betrothed to make that covenant, you would go down to the uh, to the mikvah, wherever it was, in your village or at the temple. And then you would strip down. Once again, you would not be wearing any clothes at all. And it was very private. But you would go down into the water. And then you would dunk, but you wouldn't scrub. There was no soap involved or brushes or anything else. Because it's ceremonial. Right, ceremonial, until all your hair was underwater. And then you'd stand up and step out. And then you would dry off. And they had an expression for that. They said, when you come out of the water, you are born again. Yeah. And one of the reasons why 
they would say that is because the water represented in, in, in a very reverential respect. It sounds very bizarre to us today. Uh, it, it's, it's not supposed to be anything sensuous or anything like that, but you're entering back into the water of your mother's womb, so to speak, and you're coming out a new person. But not only that, you're coming out into a new family. This is what made baptism so important to people in those days and so dangerous to people in those days, not so much during the time of John the Baptist, but during the time of the early church, when baptism became a way of saying, I am now joining a new family. I go into the water, I dunk, and then I'm coming out born again into a brand new family, which is what caused families yeah. of Christians to believe that the Christian had just betrayed the family by turning their back on their own real earthly family and joining another family. You and think this still happens today, and it happens to, to Jewish people, it happens to Muslim people and, and Hindu people. Is It's seen as a betrayal. And uh, for, for us in the West, it's a very, very simple thing to do. But it it's, a, it's a big step. In, and um, but, but again, going back to the, the you know, looking at the historical cultural context of the scriptures, the, the, the mikvah, this whole concept of this, this cleansing, this born again, was, was a natural thing. So when Jesus, because you quoted uh, Paul uh, talking about uh, the, you know, the husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And with the washing of the, the water of the word, immediately they're thinking mikvah. They're thinking mikvah just because of the word that Paul would use. And of course, this is what he related to. But if you look at the Greek word and then you do a little study on it, you know, get your computer Bible out and it will tell you the Hebrew and Aramaic equivalent is always mikvah. So, you know, again, the, the Greek is not always revealing. Sometimes you got to say, what is the Hebrew or Aramaic equivalent? Yeah. Uh, obviously, Paul could write Greek and understand Greek, but not everybody did, but most people did. And the lingua franca of that region of the world was Aramaic. It was Aramaic, they have yeah. To- they have to know Hebrew because they have the scriptures, and this is how they prayed. They prayed in Hebrew. So they would get that. And, of course, the washing with water through the word, born again into a new family with a new bridegroom. This would be one of the reasons why they would do this mikvah ceremony. It wasn't just entering into um, a ceremonious thing or just a devout thing, but you were saying, I am being born again into a new family or another family member is being added today. So, so this was done. This was done at the betrothal ceremony. At the betrothal ceremony. So both yes. both, the, both the groom and the and, yeah, sorry, and the, not at the ceremony, but actually first thing in the morning before the ceremony would take place. They didn't have clocks back then, but they would make sure that the bridegroom did it because he was entering into a covenant, and you wanted to be ceremonially perfect for that. But the bride also did it. And of course, that means that they had to do it separately from each other. I don't know if that's where our tradition of the bridegroom can't see the bride on our wedding day in modern times, but maybe it came from there, maybe Maybe. it didn't. But this is what they would do to say that there's a whole new thing being born here, and it's born of God. And it's something that was tangible to them, because a mikvah was a demonstration. It was a teaching tool. To us, it's an abstraction. To them, it was an expression. Yeah. So uh, again, and and I'm just, I cannot remember the exact scripture, but it talks about the baptism. Uh, We join Christ in death and resurrection. So for, for us, the baptism is the waters of baptism. For Jesus, his baptism was the grave or his mikvah. His mikvah was the grave. Yes. And, and that works. That's exactly right. See, again, it can have multiple purposes. We, we tend to think, well, you can only have one or the other, but that's our Western logic. To the Hebrew, you could have both and. It's okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> if it's used to express something yeah. that, that is a truth from God, here it is. Use that and express it because they didn't want anybody to miss the point. This is, the, this is one of the most, most annoying things about the Hebrew. Um, I, have, I have a go-to verse uh, for new translations, and it's in Job 22, which in, in, in the King James, which I love, it says, if you return to the Lord, you will be built up, you will put iniquity far, or iniquity will be f- put far away from your tabernacle, which means if you return to God, two things are going to happen. Firstly, you'll be built up. Secondly, sin will be put far away from your home. In the NIV, the, the nearly inspired version, and others, it says, if you return to God, you will be built up if you put iniquity far from your tabernacle. So now it's a conditional thing. 
So I spoke to my, right. my friend uh, Yossi uh, Ovadia at the uh, Kahila Haderic in uh, Kamiel in Israel. And I said, I said, well, w- which is it? And he was a bit like Tevye in a Fiddler on the Roof. He says, well, yes, this is right. And this is right. They are b- I'm going, oh, my Greek mind can't handle right. that. I know. This is, uh, uh, can I get a little controversial here? Is that okay? Why not? Uh, I just, this is why there is a, yeah, why not? Let's do it. This is why there's a war in denominational churches uh, and non-denominational churches between, dare I say it, Calvinism and Arminianism. And of course, we have these views on it that actually are, you, you can't have both. But the Hebrews, you notice in the Bible, never argued about it. God is absolutely sovereign. There's no doubt. I mean, you read Ezekiel, every other line, it seems, says the sovereign God says, you know, he's just, he's declaring sovereignty. We know this. And yet there are so many verses in the Bible that talk about choice and you need to choose and uh, you must be born again. It's not going to happen to you automatically, that sort of thing. How do we reconcile it? And we come up with these incredible mathematically arguments that are brilliantly done by good people good people on both sides of the line, but they're convinced they're right. A Hebrew mind, this logic, which is called an ancient dialectical form of logic, because they think differently than us. They just did. Uh, we, we can't imagine it because we just don't. We're hardwired the way we are. Yeah. That's just the way it is. It's not, a, it's not bad. It's just very different. But they would say, what is your, and like you talk to a rabbi, okay, well, what about this? And he'd say, yeah, what about it? He says, God is sovereign. Yes. And you have a choice. Yes. What's your problem? <laughs> he just never showed you the connection. But the word of God says it's true. The word of God says that's true. So it's true. Get over it. There's there's going to be an awful lot of forehead slapping in the kingdom. Uh, yes, I think so. It's just <laughs> So this is the way their thinking was. It sure makes life easier, yeah. uh, but for us to be able to accept it, because we're wired the way we are, it's just you can't have both. And yeah. the Hebrews would go, don't put words in God's mouth. Who said? <laughs> yeah. So, let's let's get back to the wedding. We talked last time about um, how Jesus said to the disciples, I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. There are so many different things that go on there. Um, and I don't know if you've heard, I assume you have the connection between this ancient uh, Jewish betrothal process and the feasts of the Lord. Uh, where the first fruits is where, well, the, the Passover is where Jesus paid the bride price. Uh, the first okay, fruits right. is where he goes back to his father's house to prepare a place. Uh, Pentecost, the, the story is that at some point in this ancient process, while, um, while, he, the, bride, the, while the groom is building the, the, the house or the, the room, uh, he sends a gift to the bride to say, I, you know, I, I still love you. It's still all happening. Dad, Dad's just not happy with the plumbing. Uh, and that's Pentecost with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And then there's the, the trumpets, which is where Dad is happy with the plumbing. And so the best man is sent to blow the trumpet. And the, and the bride's family now know that sometime in the next 48 hours, uh, the groom is going to come, and so we get the, and that's of course the feast of trumpets, and and no man knows the hour of the day. You've heard all of this. I've heard it. Yes, I don't. I, I don't actually do a lot of teaching on that. You're probably a much better expert in that well, area. I, than I, I, I don't know. Yes. What, see, the thing is, this is what I try and research, Jay. Is is, and we talked about this last time. Right. How much of that is actual interpretation in to what the Bible says, and how much is was in there originally. But, but one of the things in there is uh, the, the no man knows the hour or the day. Right, right. The, uh, uh, going back, this, this is where it gets very interesting. And this is where it can be um, a little controversial because you have, to, you have to, as you said, the macro view, you have to, instead of look at the scripture under a microscope, you've got to snap on a fisheye lens. Yep. And start looking at the whole larger sections of it. And one of the things that does the greatest damage to this are chapter breaks in the Bible. Which, you know, Because again, unless it's the Psalms or something like that, in so many places in Scripture where people put chapter numbers in, it breaks up context, and sometimes devastatingly so. Um, the uh, uh, typical wedding back during the Second Temple period or the Roman times back in Israel, the times when Jesus lived down there uh, in, in that area, where um, 
the um, uh, weddings were regional and the nuances in the weddings you didn't just find among the Jews, you would find with Arabs and Arabs in those days, remember Islam didn't come along for another 600 and some years. So we're talking about pagans. They were idol worshiping pagans at yep. the time. And yet the nuances of many of their styles of weddings were very, very similar to what the Hebrews did. The Hebrews simply had a godly uh, version of, of kind of what was common to most people in the area. So the, uh, the typical thing that would happen was there would be a betrothal, there would be a betrothal period. What happened during that betrothal period could vary, but not a lot's written about it because who wants to waste space on valuable scrolls to write down these little nuances, including the Galilean wedding? Especially, especially on things that the, that the hearers already knew. Yes. Why bother with it? it? You know, it's their custom. Why do we write? It's like it's like the song "Happy Birthday to You." I assume you do that in New Zealand too. Yeah. You'd, all you have to do is, you know, if you're writing a novel, they say "Happy Birthday" to them. We don't have to put the lyrics down. Why? Yeah. Because everybody knows it. Same sort of thing. So uh, the weddings were somewhat the same format everywhere you went. But along comes Jesus, and he's trying to explain to the disciples who aren't really listening to him. And if I could just add. In John 17, when he prays for them, he credits them as having understood everything he said. It's almost like he's saying, you know what, Father, they're going to get it someday. Yeah. It's all right, because he doesn't blame them for not getting it. But they didn't get it. And when he talks about his coming, he talks about it in the context of uh, a thief in the night, the days of Noah. But then he makes this statement. He says, no man knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man, not the angels of heaven, not even the Son, only the Father knows. And then he gets into, as it was in the days of Noah, people were marrying and giving in marriage. Does that define the context? Not really, but it's part of it. It's there, yeah. but it doesn't really define the context. And then he goes into, you know, people in the field and, you know, ladies grinding wheat and all of that, and they're gone. And then here's the master of the house goes away and, and the thief comes. And if they knew when the thief was going to come, they would have been ready and all of this. And you say, well, okay, so where's the wedding in that? And how do you know that no man knows the day or the hour, not uh, not the angels of heaven, not even the son, only the father knows when the son of man will come. How do you know that's part of a wedding? Well, chapter 25, you got to take that number 25 and just throw it out. Yep. Because the next thing that he does is he says, the kingdom of, you know, he's talking about the coming of the son of man will be like 10 virgins. And now you have a surprise wedding in that parable that he puts in there, because this is chapter 24 and 25 are all one big discussion. It's yep. the chapter breaks where we mentally put a wall right there, but it actually flows right together. Try it. Just take the chapter out and just keep reading the whole thing. You mean, so, you mean read more than one chapter at a time of the Bible? You, you oh are a radical. Did I really say that? <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I, I love to read the Bible out loud and then ignore the chapter breaks, because suddenly you realize where he starts and where he stops. He, the gospel writer, or Jesus, or even Old Testament, you realize yeah. how this thing comes together, and then there are contextual breaks in there, but they become very, very obvious where the contextual break is, but they're not always where the, the chapter is. In fact, most of the time, they're not. So you get into the parable of the ten virgins, and they are surprised by the coming of the bridegroom. The but not, not, not completely surprised, because... The 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 ten the the, the 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 bridesmaids haven't been sitting there for twelve months because what we talked about last time is the the betrothal process takes place, and then yes. the wedding the wedding isn't for twelve months. Those ten virgins aren't sitting there with their lamps for twelve months. Right, they can't do that. They're going, ha, huh, the the time is ready. There must there must have been a a, a signal to them. Right. To put on the, and, their, their white robes and get the lamps. And even Jesus addresses this in the same chapter, 24, not 25, but in 24, he says that when you see, you know, the trees starting to bud, you know that summer is almost near. In other words, there are signs. When he talks about the brides, uh, the bridesmaids, uh, you know, the 10 virgins and all of that uh, yeah. that are waiting, the, you know, get, get inside their heads and they're thinking, yeah, well, we know they're not sitting there with their lamps burning for a year. They've been preparing. They've helped the bride. The bridesmaids have helped the bride. 
you know, with the dress. They've helped do all kinds of things to get her ready to go. And now they're ready to accompany her as they go. And they're supposed to have oil in flasks to pour in their lamps and then light the lamps, trim them out and go. You got you to put them in a bowl to get outside because the wind will blow out the flame. So it's a beautiful sight, especially if it takes place at night, which traditionally that was part of the game. Make it happen at night because it's just more interesting. You got to wake people up and all of that. So um, uh, the, the, here you have these bridesmaids. The, the shout comes up. The bridegroom is coming. They leap to their feet. They get ready. Five are ready. Five are not. And so forth. And you know the rest of the parable. But, but this, again, it indicates something that was seemed to be peculiar to the Galileans. Because every other Judean wedding, when you can find information about it from that time period, again, after the fall of the temple. That's very different. That's right. Right. So you got to go back before, and it's kind of in the background. Somebody will mention parts of a wedding, and you have to sort of put all the pieces together. It's more, rather than a process of discovery through archaeology, it's more of a process of elimination through anthropology. That's how you kind of have to go back. And then you say, what am I left with here? It appears that regional weddings, Judean and also Arab weddings, and maybe other types of tribes, Samaritans, whatever, had the same kind of format. And you knew when the bridegroom was coming. Well, he's going to come this afternoon. He's going to come this evening. We'll blow the trumpet and everybody's going to be ready. The Galileans appear to be the only ones. There's no evidence that they did it quite that way. They, 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 they played the a little game, wasn't it? It, it was like, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so if... If I make allusion again to the, the Feast of Trumpets and the, and the coming of Christ, which most people would think of as, as the rapture, is yes. the trumpet would blow. And uh, according to the theory, that would advise the bride's family that sometime in the next 48-hour period, the groom was going to come for his bride. It could be 10 o'clock in the morning. It could be 11 o'clock at night. It could be 3 o'clock the next morning. No man yes. knows the hour or the, which day but it's sometime in this 48-hour period. That's, that's right. what you've discovered? And there's a, and it could be, and I, I certainly could be. Yeah. And I, yeah. I just, I'm about 50% on that. I'm about 50% on this other one, maybe a little bit more, that the Bible seems to indicate when you read the narratives and it talks about the trumpet blast, when it happens, everybody goes, oh, he's coming right now. And yeah. one of the things that I find interesting and peculiar, and I mentioned this before in the, in the last session, is that the Apostle Paul, well, in the beginning of this one, seemed to, to have spent a lot of time with these Galilean disciples. The 12 were, again, all Galileans, except yes. for perhaps Judas. And one of the things that he tells the uh, Thessalonians, who are all Greeks, there are some Jews among them, because there were at least three synagogues in Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki, um, and he tells them, for the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and a trumpet blast, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will, um, uh, you know, will ascend to meet them in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, the, the Greeks would go, oh, that's really cool. And perhaps the Hellenized Jews in that area would go, well, that sounds a little bit like a wedding. But the Galileans would go, that sounds exactly like one of our weddings. Yeah. That's the, you know, so he's using a model that he had heard. Paul didn't, you know, he not only taught, he was teachable. He learned these things because he had to. He suddenly realizes Jesus is the Messiah. Now i got to learn everything I can about him yeah. and who's his source. And, and, that's, and that's very problem. relevant for us, Jay, because he's talking to Gentiles in Thessaloniki yes. about Jewish customs, which yes. is exactly what we are doing. We're, we're talking to Gentiles about Jewish customs so that we can understand our Messiah, our Christ better. Uh, and and yes. I have to reinforce this. There's, there's no way that that I, or I don't think Jay would ever do it either, would want anyone who is a Gentile to think you need to convert to being a Jew. We don't. But what we do need to do is we need to understand it from that Jewish context, the, the historical. I mean, you, you said after the temple fell in 70 AD, this is, this is to, to quote a term, this is all history. This is irrelevant because things were done differently then. So, so we got to get the historical cultural context of when Jesus spoke, of when Paul wrote, and, and try and get that into our Gentile Greek thinking minds. Let, let, me, let me not only applaud that, let me take it a step further. Um, the Apostle Paul 
was born in Tarsus, which was a hotbed of Hellenization, Greek yep. thinking and the Greek style of doing things. And I've, I've spent a lot of time doing. I hope, I hope you know, everybody listening is 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 not don't don't let your brain blur out on this because it really does make a, a very important distinction. And I'm sure that you'll be talking about it a lot more if you already haven't in the past and the future too. But even though he was born there and was raised in a Hellenized Greek thinking way, he was obviously. Hebrew thinking and dedicated to it. Once under Gamaliel, Gamaliel was not Hellenized um, and he was taught by Gamaliel. But more than that, Paul was a Pharisee. And one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that when he converted to Christ, when he met Jesus, when he met the Messiah on the road, uh, he did not suddenly become something other than what he was, except that he was saved. Paul was a saved Pharisee and his entire life he was a saved Pharisee. He never denied that. And occasionally he mentioned it. But the Pharisees came about about 100 years before as a reaction against the Greek Hellenization of Jewish Hebrew doctrine and yep. the Bible. And he was a protector of the Hebrew way of thinking. So when he's talking to the Thessalonians or anyone else, he is making very clear, not a Hellenized way of looking at the Bible but speaking in Hellenized terms, the way the Bible was originally meant to present the truth to people in the simplest ways. All he's doing is sort of being a translator to them. That's what we're seeing when we see the Apostle Paul. So good good going there. And when when we talk about the Hellenization of the Jews in those days, that's such a picture of the church today. Uh, anyway, another regional thing with the Galilean wedding, and you, you spoke about this in the video that I watched, and I'm going to put a link to that uh, with the uh, the podcast. But you talked about them painting the bride's hands so that she couldn't do any work. Yes. Now that's, that seems to be just a Galilean thing. It Well, actually, it could have been regional. It could have okay. been all over, but it's been around not just during the time of Jesus. It's been around for a very long time. We get these uh, the indications from this from uh, frescoes in tombs, in catacombs, where sometimes, you know, not only do they paint pictures of death, they paint pictures of scenes of life that are, it's you know, it's water-based paint into plaster. It lasts for thousands of years. This yep. is what they find, for instance, when you get really vivid pictures uh, from Egypt or perhaps even from Herculaneum or Pompeii or something like that. They just last and all the colors are there. And you can see bridal scenes where where people, the women had their hands all painted, but not only on the back, but on the front of their hands. Uh, the henna, it would have come from India or places yep. like Pakistan or whatever, because Israel is a land bridge between Europe, Asia, Africa, and Arabia. And it's this tiny little strip of land. And they didn't like to ship things by boat because ships sunk. And yeah. they couldn't control the you know the weather, so it was it was always risky to send things by boat. So Israel get collects all the caravans, the spice roads, the silk roads, the Via Maris that goes right through Israel, the way of the sea, all the great trade routes of the world as far as northern Europe, China, even as far out as Japan, and going down to Africa and the southernmost parts of Africa or the tip of Arabia, all narrowed down through Israel, which means the bride could have come up with all kinds of interesting cloth for her bridal gown and as far as you know like the 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 paint or the henna that would be like a temporary tattoo because they weren't supposed to tattoo themselves the jews would never have done that so it's a wash off way of just decorating the bride the makeup that she would have had for her eyes even though her face would have been covered with a veil until uh it was removed at the wedding day, not the betrothal ceremony, but during the wedding day, that her eyes would have been beautifully painted. Where did they learn that? They came out of Egypt and the Egyptians, even the men painted their eyes up. So there was nothing that was forbidden about such things, but they would paint the hands, the palms of the hands. And this is great because, you know, the age of grace with the church and the grace of God that we're saved by, that the women, the bride, not only had her hands painted and her feet painted, but she had the palms of her hands painted because she wasn't supposed to do any work. She'd smear the paint. So everybody had to do it for her. She just had to sit there, look beautiful in her waiting gown, waiting for the bridegroom to come, and she wasn't supposed to do any work. Other right. people were to do that for her. How, do, how does that work in with um, uh, a, the, the bride, I'm thinking in Revelation, that, that prepares herself? Yes, the bride has prepared herself. She's wearing white. In other words, she's kept herself pure. 
Um, the this is this is an important nuance. I don't think it has anything to do with the hand painting. Uh, maybe it does, but but if it does, we can't really directly read that in there. So I'll just I'll, I'll beg off on that one. Yeah. But but the veil that the bride wore uh, as a bride who was betrothed until the day of her wedding, when at some point during the wedding feast she would remove the veil at, at an appropriate moment. Uh, indicating that she is now married and that she belongs to this man and he belongs to her for good. That's the way it was. The veil was like, uh, for lack of a better term, a bronze wall that nobody could penetrate. It said, I am keeping myself from my bride. I will not take my veil off until he removes it from me at just the right time. In the meantime, the veil says, I'm keeping myself pure. We're the bride of Christ. Yes. And our veil as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we wear a veil. Our veil is even like as it is in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, the white robes, as it were, that's not a veil, but the white robes that she's got, a sign white, linen, robe, purity. She's a bride. She belongs there because she's wearing this white. And that was provided by the bridegroom. Uh, in this particular case, it was given to her. Where does our purity come from? It's given to us by God. He purifies us, and then he gives us the Holy Spirit to keep us pure. He gives us the word of God to live a pure life mm. and a conscience that can be pricked when we're starting to go the wrong way, and he brings us back. So uh, the veil uh, for the bride of Christ, the church, is its purity. I, the more I read online and the sites that I go to that are church news sites and whatever that I think are at least somewhat valid news is questionable all over the place now. Yeah. But you find that more and more churches are trying to compromise what the Bible says. Or as uh, there's an old uh, movie actor that died many, many years ago of rampant alcoholism, but his name was W.C. Fields. He had a yes. big nose and he talked really funny, right? Well, there's a story. It may be apocryphal. I'm not positive, but. The story goes that his daughter went to see him in the hospital when he was dying of his alcoholism. And he's sitting in a chair reading a Bible. And she says, Dad, you're reading a Bible. Why are you reading a Bible? He says, I'm looking for loopholes. So in other words, I'm looking for ways to get around all of this stuff that, that, that I've been convicted about. Yeah. And, and for us, wearing our veil, wearing our veil isn't looking for a way to take it off. It's making sure that nobody can take it off, that we are holding on to that thing because I've seen my bridegroom and he is a magnificent bridegroom. And I will yeah. not take this veil off because I know who I'm wedded to. We need to hold on to the um, to the attitude in, in Hebrews 12. It talks about Jesus uh, for the joy set before him endured the cross and the joy was us. He endured yes. the cross for that marriage relationship. And we need to do that with the veil on is, is look forward to the consummation of that marriage to keep ourselves. And I'm so glad you brought that up because the word joy, look it up, not only in the Greek, but in the Aramaic. And you'll find that that word joy is a wedding dance. Now, wedding dance isn't like our wedding dances where you, you know, romantically. No, yeah, know, no, no, no. Step around the room, but it's the Middle Eastern type rejoicing, just crazy, fun, exciting wedding dance. This is the, and, and it literally means a wedding dance. And interestingly, at, at uh, they were the, you know, the saying is if, if you want to see joy, if you want to see joy and, and abandon, watch the rabbis dance at the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes, or watch the rabbis dance. At, uh, at just any wedding, there are actually galleries of wedding photographs from ultra-Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem and in Israel where they will chronicle what goes on. And when you see how the bridegroom dances and how the bride dances and how everybody gets in, just the still photographs, I have a whole gallery full of them on my computer, it's just Nothing but explosions of joy. Yeah, and and that's modern. What was the old days like? Or uh, I have a friend who was who was staying at a Bible college one time uh, that was in Bethlehem. It's gone now, but he heard all this noise down the street. And he did bold guy. He gets out and he goes down there, and here are the Arabs. Uh, the Palestinian Arabs, and there's a wedding going on, and he will, and he's just kind of looking from a distance, and a Palestinian Arab marches over to him, grabs him by the arm, and pulls him in, and says, "Come rejoice with us." And he's dancing around with swords and all kinds of things for the rest of the night. He said it was amazing. One of the uh, greatest experiences of his life. What's our 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 uh, joining to Jesus going to be like when it's in heaven? 
Uh, I can't even begin to imagine. No, 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 no man knows. I want to just qu- quickly point back to something. I want to want to talk about this uh, the the robes that the guests are given, but. Uh, again, pointing back to the mikvah, to the washing of the word, the, the mikvah was living water. It, it, it flowed and washing of the word to me is we need to be continually reading the, the word of God, allowing it to flow through us and over us and cleanse us in that way. It's not just reading it. And I remember my daughter when she was, I think, 11, she read through the whole Bible in one year. I was really, really proud of her. And I said, well, what are you going to read next? She goes, well, I read it. You know, that's not what it's about for us. It's it's keep reading the Bible, keep keep it washing and, and you learn new things. So uh, just as we finish up with this session, the, um, the one of the other parables that Jesus tells about the wedding is the guests are dressed in, in white. I mean, the guests have been pulled in from all over the place, from under the hedgerows and things. But there's one right. man there that's not in the wedding uh, garments. Tell, tell us about those garments. The garments are uh, were not always used. Um, in uh, at weddings, if the family was very, if the families were very, very poor, uh, they couldn't afford to do it. But for what we would refer to as like middle class or above, as far as the economic status of the family, um, that uh, during the time when the bridegroom is putting together the feast and adding on the room to the house, the betrothal period, the bride is putting together her wedding dress and uh, and you know just gathering her the ladies together and doing whatever preparations brides do, getting ready for the bridegroom. Yep. The father of the bridegroom knows, of course, because this was their tradition, and this is one that is all over the place. So it's not just something that is obscure. It's very, very prevalent is that the bridegroom's father is hosting this feast. The bridegroom is responsible for the feast, the wedding feast, when the wedding day comes. But it's going to happen there because the bride and the groom are going to live there from now on. The guests are going to be coming in. This era, this age, and like most ages of the earth, we live in such a blessed and privileged age uh, to be able to have a grocery store. You can go yeah. down and just buy milk or, or get a loaf of bread. And we're really not worried about that in this part of the world. I mean, God forbid the day should come. But but back then, they lived in an age, thousands of years stretch, everywhere in the world, of great need, of great need. And they didn't know from day to day what they were going to have uh, in the way of provisions. So um, the bridegroom's father would uh, if he were middle class and above, he would arrange for all the invited guests who were gathered during the parade that the bridegroom has to go get the bride. It's kind of like the resurrection of the dead coming in. They rise first and then, every, then the bride right. comes after that. They go back to the house. And so it's like a giant, giant conga where everybody joins in and they're all... Exactly. Yes, very much so. I, I, I never put it like that before. That's a good way to do it. I'll, I'll use that. You can <laughs> but, use that. But, that's great. Thank you. Um, uh, it makes me a thief. There we go. So anyway, but they're, they're back in the room and uh, uh, at the compound and all the guests come piling in. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of people and the bridegroom's father to make sure that all the guests are honored will arrange during that year to come up with white linen robes to hand all the guests and they put them on. I would think, you know, for a modern, uh, you know, Westerner, we'd yep. that'd be kind of funny. Back then, they love it because especially if the people that were invited were poor, remember, they don't just go down to the store and buy a new change of clothes. They can't afford to do that. They wear clothes until they virtually rot off their body. Yep. And then they have to really barter and work hard to get a new pair. So this guy gives them a whole brand new garment and it's white linen, like a priest garment, not a priest garment, but like it. And they put it on. But it also marked gate crashers, people that would come in in this very needy world, knowing there's going to be a lot of food there. There's going to be a lot of drink there. And I want to come in and partake of that feast. Yeah. But I was never invited. You know, I was not part of the invited guests. I snuck in. Well, only the invited guests who are identified by the father or by whoever it was that was involved in all the invitations, obviously not the way we do it modern times, made sure that all the invited guests have robes. The one, the, the, the parable that we're talking about, uh, you know, of the great banquet, the king obviously has a huge number of guests 
and he invites them off. But the people that invite the, the people off the highways and the byways and out in the bushes and everything else, bring them in. First of all, they're poor. They're really going to appreciate the, the, the robes. And secondly, they're going to be able to be identified by the people who invited them. They're going to give them the robes. And the king is a very wealthy man. But here comes a guy who was not invited. And it really doesn't matter his status. He's standing in the middle of all these people dressed in white in street clothes. And the king sees him. And he says, what is that man doing here? He's not dressed for the occasion. He wasn't given a robe. Yeah. Get him out. And you can tie that in with, well, God elects us to be in his presence. He says so. But you can also tie it in that the bride has made herself ready. In other words, she's prepared to wear this robe too. And well, we're talking about a guest versus a bride. In a Hebrew mind, that really doesn't matter. The principle is coming through yes. because the, the, the message is pointed. It's not general. So that's the deal with that. And, and it's a fantastic little passage yeah. there. That's W.C. Fields, isn't it? He's trying to find a loophole. Yes, he's trying, trying to get trying it. To find a loophole. But he's hungry. If we go back to the parable of the, of the ten virgins, the, the door is locked. Yes. And, and, and you, have to, you, you, you have to meld these parables together. And, you know, the, the door is locked. The invited guests are in. It's, it's, and nobody it's, comes in and yeah. nobody goes out for seven days and nights. Typically, that's, that was the usual tradition. It could differ. Again, you can find some differing yeah. on that. But the tradition was seven days and nights, which lends itself to other discussion, which is fascinating too. But when he says, can we throw that man out where there's the wailing and gnashing of teeth? That was a Hebrew uh, expression, a local expression, local when I say just local to the region, where the wailing of gnashing and teeth is, in here, it's like heaven. Out there, it's like hell. Yeah. So in other words, he doesn't belong in here. So they got the message. The wailing and gnashing of teeth was just saying, things are so great in here, throw them out where things aren't so good or really bad. And yeah. that's where he had to go. And yet this man, when he shows up, keep in mind one last thing, that he shows up and he's in his street clothes. It means that he probably declined the invitation originally. He must have. He must have. I'm coming anyway and I'm sneaking in. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, he, because the invited guests wouldn't come. The, 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 the servants were sent out to gather others in and there was still room. So they went out under those hedgerows and things. So he must have declined that invitation. Jay, this has been fascinating. I look forward to doing this again with you at some point. So uh, God bless you I in your ministry. Most honored. I'm sorry? I said, God bless you in your ministry. Oh, thank you. God bless you too. <laughs> I hope yeah. that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'll take all the blessings God wants to give me. We can all use all right. them, and you too. May God just bless you and yours. And, well, and all the folks that are listening, oh, man, I just hope you just devour the word on a daily basis. And think like a peasant. Jesus was talking to simple people, and we are all simple. Let it well, well, let me let me give you a blessing. We have a, a guy here in New Zealand called Richard Brunton who has written a, a powerful little book called the, the, the Awesome Power of Blessing. Uh, which has just been turned into an, uh, an album by Scripture and Song by David and Dale Garrett from Scripture and Song, really? the latest album just about to be released. But he talks about blessing being specific. So in the name of Jesus, Jay, I bless you with insights into the Word of God that will just blow your mind that you will sit there as you read the Word, as the Holy Spirit opens up the Word, and you will sit there and go, wow, just wow. I, I bless you with that. God bless you every day. I pray for that. Thank you so much. I'll take that. The scripture says, can I do this? Yes. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you and everybody watching peace. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you so much. And thank you for watching and uh, for listening. Please click the links. So there is a link there to one of Jay's presentations on the Galilean wedding. It's about an hour and a half long, and you will find a lot more detail in there than what we've talked about in these two podcasts. Uh, and uh, make sure you subscribe to the channel so that you can get the latest podcast when it comes available. God bless you.